This is an SM Media production. Hi folks and welcome to the latest episode of The Rewind right here on SM Media. I'm Scott McPike, it's an absolute pleasure to be your host as always. We are moving up north, we are going to look at Aberdeen. What happened in Aberdeen when Sir Alex Ferguson took over in 1978 and what followed was a remarkable journey which led ultimately to a European Cup Winners' Cup in 1983. To join me to look back in this period, I'm delighted to welcome, it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by Ali Begg. Ali, welcome to the show, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to this one. There's a you. You'll obviously know this period pretty well, but yeah, we're about to. We're approaching the kind of fortieth anniversary. This is the kind of fortieth anniversary season. I hold this whole kind of time. What was your? What's the kind of legacy of this situation? Before we kind of go, go through it in detail, like when when somebody asks you that like Aberdeen won in a European trophy, what's the what kind of stands out to you is that the kind of memory from that time? I spoke to Doug Rugby recently about this and he gave me a really interesting answer to almost ex- identical question. And he said, how dare we win the Cup Winners <laughs> Cup? And I loved that. And I never really thought about it that way before. And it just made me think about it even more because we are the last Scottish club to win a European trophy. It was a remarkable feat take into consideration that we beat Bayern Munich, who were giants of European football all at that time. And then we defied all the odds by beating the, the mighty Real Madrid on a rain-soaked pitch in Gothenburg that night. But we didn't just beat them, Scott. We absolutely battered them on the night. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the game back in its entirety, you will see just how good Aberdeen were that night and how worthy they were of winning that trophy. And let's not forget, they went on to win the Super Cup as well, hence the two stars above our badge. So it was a feat like no other. It was remarkable in, in its execution. It was remarkable in its preparation. It just all came together and as much as this saddens me to say, I don't think I'll ever see it again in my lifetime. And to to properly tell that story, I think you need to go back a few years to the kind of the mid seventies when that kind of Aberdeen were they were challenging for domestic honours. It's fair to say, but they were never they were never at the trophy level. They were never winning trophies. They were always coming up short against the kind of powerhouses at the time. But you look at like Ali McLeod obviously winning in nineteen seventy six. It's really when Billy McNeil comes in. It's it seems to go up a notch, I think. Billy McNeil's an interesting one because obviously he's only there for a season and obviously he goes to Celtic, he takes the job that I think he was always destined for. I think he was always destined to take over from, from Jock Steen. But McNeil being there for a season, how big a change was that in the process? Because McNeil was a young manager, obviously was a, a captain, legendary captain for Celtic, had won the European Cup and so on. But how big a statement was that for McNeil to come in and, and his overall season, what kind of stands out to you from that time? He left the football club in a much better state for Sir Alex Ferguson to come in and basically take on that mantle 
and take all the great work that Billy McNeil and John Clark had done in that year and then stamp his own authority on that and then take it forward. And that's exactly what he did. Billy had a huge impact at the football club. We came so close to winning the league. We lost the Scottish Cup final. He introduced players like Steve Archibald, Gordon Strachan, Alex McLeish, who obviously became mainstays and vital cogs in that team in the years ahead. And he persuaded Willie Miller to sign a new deal when many clubs were interested in Willie at the time. So his work at Aberdeen Football Club should really never be forgotten. He set, he really did set the benchmark for Sir Alex Ferguson to come in and take it forward. Yeah. And then, obviously, McNeil goes to Celtic and a, a new manager's needed. And Dick Donald turns to the, the man he chased for, for so long, Alex Ferguson. Now, to look at Alex Ferguson, I think you need to look at it in two ways. We know Alex, we revere Alex Ferguson, rightly so. But his first two jobs, you actually look at the jobs he did, and they were they were good jobs, but obviously that, that bit of controversy at St Marin. When you look at Alex Ferguson getting appointed in 78, like what stands out to you? Like what's when you when you see this guy who's obviously that issue at St Marin, not a brilliant playing career, is that fair to say? Like he's but obviously he was he was well respected in the game at that point, apart from obviously that situation at St Marin, which has kind of come out recently that it was maybe a lot more to it than certainly met the eye at the time. When he first came in, I've always remembered a story where Dick Donald said to him, we have no money. The budget is very limited. So you're going to have to work with the youngsters. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to develop the youngsters. And you're going to have to bring them through. So he started putting a plan together. And he started employing people as scouts and he extended the scouting network. He had people like George Adams, people like Bobby Clark, Lenny Taylor, Teddy Scott, absolute legends at our football club, who all started putting together this pathway for youngsters to make their way into the Aberdeen first team. And it worked. And it worked wonders at our football club. And that was a way of stamping his own authority on the football club right from the off. Because he was able to develop youngsters like your Neil Simpsons and your Neil Coopers and your John Hewitts and this type of player, your Eric Black, your Ryan Guns, who all came up through what was a youth system through schoolboy forms. Obviously, it's all completely different now with the academies, but back then, it was very norm to sign a schoolboy form and then make your way through the various ranks. So that work, early doors, was hugely important. And obviously, we we benefited from all that hard work in the early days. Yeah. And then, get into the kind of second season, like, when's the league in his second full season in the 1979-80? Like, how big, like in retrospect, was that win? Because that kind of builds towards that success. See, having that early stamp of a, a, a title triumph, what did that do for the rest of the, the Ferguson tenure? Well, he knew straight away the only way to have success in Scotland was you had to split the old firm. You had to stop their dominance. That was his goal from day one. He knew that. So he started to to change the mindset of the players. He started to drum it into them. 
about this. There should never be a fear factor about going to Glasgow again. And there's always that famous story about when Aberdeen scored a last-minute equaliser at Rangers and all the players were celebrating in the dressing room and he couldn't for the life of him understand why they were celebrating a draw. So very slowly he started to change the mindset. But he knew to be successful, he had to split Celtic Rangers. So when he was able to do that in the season that we won the league, 1979-1980, again, that set a benchmark for our future success, but it also made other clubs and other managers sit up and take note that, do you know what? With the right tools, with the right psychological thinking, with the right mindset, this can be achieved. And Aberdeen and Alex Ferguson have proven that. But it also boils down to the player's mentality because the players all bought into Sir Alex Ferguson's way of thinking. And I genuinely believe if they didn't, if they didn't get on board with what he wanted to achieve, you know, they were quickly let go from the football club because all he wanted was a group of winners. He wanted a group of winners, not just on the park, but off the park, knowing that the next time they go down to Glasgow, the mindset was completely different. Today, we're going down there to beat them. We're not going down to get a point if we're lucky uh, or maybe come away with a one or a two nil defeat. Today, we go down to beat them. And I think that was that was the turning point for me. Do you think as well with Ferguson, like because of the way he left Rangers, there was always that sense of, not animosity, but like he always he took it personally when he went to Ibrox and Parkhead as well. Like he, it wasn't just about getting Aberdeen the points, it was for him to prove that what that the way he was let go there was wrong. Like, is that maybe fair to say? I've always wondered that with Ferguson, like because he's obviously come out in recent years with a documentary and said his time at Rangers was it, it ended in a, a kind of bad way, and that's obviously yeah. been proven accurate. But was there a personal animosity for him towards the old form at the time, do you think? I think he might have used part of it as a driving force, but I think his his mentality and his drive to do well purely came from footballing terms. Mm-hmm. Yes, it might have added a little bit of more fire in the belly, let's put it that way. Yeah. But we've seen numerously that you can't always use something bad to turn into something good. I don't think he used it as a driving force overall, but I think it did play a small part. Mm-hmm. And we look at, we go, can I move forward way back to 1982-1983, a remarkable season, but we also need to look at the landscape of Scottish football and how much it changed, as you say. I think Ferguson winning the league with Aberdeen had given the motivation to the likes of other teams in Scotland to to try and split the old form, and one of those teams was certainly Dundee United. Now there is a there is a background to this. Obviously, Ferguson and McC- uh, Jim McLean had been had kind of done their badges together, and McLean had known each other. But I think the the kind of the, the thing that's missed in this whole thing that, that doesn't get spoke about enough is they they openly spoke to each other about helping each other out. Like Dundee United would help Aberdeen by going to Glasgow and trying to get a point in it. There was this, obviously there was this rivalry in terms of the two teams, but there was also this bond that they'd 
they both saw themselves as outsiders and they both just wanted to break the barrier in Scottish football. Was that an accurate statement to say? Yeah, I think so. And I think because they had so much respect for each other, mm-hmm. and let's not forget, Dundee United had such a great team yeah. back then, a, a team full of Scottish internationals, David Neary, Morris Malpass, Hamish McAlpine, these type of guys, Paul Sturrock. The list is endless. And it was a really good time for Scottish football, I think. It was, um, it was an exciting period and it was great to see other teams competing at the very highest level. And also, I have absolutely no doubt that Jim McLean was inspired by Sir Alex Ferguson. He could see that he was changing the mindset. He was changing the landscape. He was taking his teams down to Glasgow without having any fear. And I'm sure he took that on as well in his own thinking, in his own preparation when it came to taking his side down to to Celtic Park and down to Ibrox. Again, you could see where it worked. The players bought into it. You could see in the games, there was no fear. And when I, you know, I I was still relatively young during that time, sort of 10, 11, 12, 13 years of age during that time. And you could you could see it, you could feel the shift. And all of a sudden, everything became really exciting. You couldn't wait to play a Dundee United. You couldn't wait to play a Hearts. You couldn't wait to welcome Celtic and Rangers to Pataudry. It was a really great time to be a football fan growing up. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the season starts with a, a trip to Tanadice, a 2-0 defeat. What's your memory, like the, the memories of that day? Like, what have you kind of heard since about the... Because that, that, to me, feels like a big statement from Dundee United. The opening game of the season, how big is that for Dundee United to get that opening one? Oh, it was massive for them at the time. And as a youngster growing up, I had become so used to Aberdeen winning mm-hmm. that for me, my thinking was, whenever we went into a game, we were going to win this game. So whenever we lost, it felt very alien to me particularly on the opening day when you're expecting Aberdeen to start strongly and they don't, you're completely not ready for that type of emotion. And again, at that age, as your emotions are developing and your character and your personality is developing, you come away from Pataudry or Tanadice feeling betrayed or angry or even sad and I have to admit, at that age, I wasn't quite ready for those sort of emotions during a football match. But it, but it helps shape you as a person. It helps develop your character and your, and your your all round general understanding of what emotions are in football. Um, so as much as it was a, a huge disappointment, it was also a huge shock because you just weren't you weren't ready for it. Yeah, and then like. Before, obviously, that the league started, there was a, a preliminary round in the, the Cup Winners' Cup. We're going to get through this journey just piece by piece. The games against Sion in the preliminary round, obviously, Dundee and uh, Aberdeen had qualified for the Cup Winners' Cup through the one in the Scottish Cup the season before. Yeah. The trip, the games against Sion, a 7-0 home win and then a 4-1 away victory to secure a place in the first round. What's the memories here? You just look, seven, six, six different scorers in the first leg and then, obviously, Mark McGee with a double in Switzerland. It's a big statement. Well, yeah, well, Sion was my first ever European game at Pataudry. Okay. 
Good and it was the first, yeah, and it was the first time that my my mum and my dad allowed me to sit behind the goal and go in with family friends because I would usually go in with my mum and dad either in the main stand or the south stand. But that night, they allowed me to go into the paddock, and I'd only just, if from memory, had I started secondary? No, I was still at primary school, and it was a school night, so to be allowed to go to an evening game where you know you're not getting home to sort of half past nine, ten o'clock at night and then you've got to be up for school was a real treat and it's an occasion that I've never forgotten. I can still picture it in my mind. I can still picture Neil Simpson scoring that night. I can still picture Stuart Kennedy from memory scoring that night as well. At the beach end, I think if my memory serves me correct. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite strange the memories that really stick in the mind and the away leg. I always thought, well, if we score seven at home, then we've got to score a barrel load away. That was my that was my sort of naive thinking as a kid. And but thankfully, it, it, it did happen on the night. And the second leg, it was a formality, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, Miller uh, McGee with a double and John Hewitt. The next game is the the first round against uh, the Albanian cha- uh, side Dinamo Tirana. The first leg, a tight one now victory, John Hewitt with a goal, and then it's it secured around the place in the second round where I now now draw away in Albania. What is your memories from this? Because this to me looks it seems to be from kind of reading back things about it, it seems to be a really tight affair. And I think Dino Tirana were probably a better side than certainly you would think. The interesting thing about the Dinamo was it was the probably the one and only that Sir Alex Ferguson went into completely unprepared right? because Albania at the time was a communist-led country. There was no information coming out of the country whatsoever. But Sir Alex was able to gain the thoughts of Billy McNeil because they had played in Albania either a year or two years before. So he was able to get some information from Billy McNeil about how to prepare the team when they went over there. And also, he, upon the referee from the Sion game, because he had officiated a couple of Dinamo Tirana games previously, so we actually got in touch with the referee from the Sion game and asked him to sort of give him some notes on some of the players that Aberdeen should look out for on that night, which I found absolutely fascinating. But the match day programme for the home game was complete their team lines was completely unlisted it's a blank page that's how little Aberdeen Football Club knew about this team that were coming over and again I do remember I was at the game um and it was a very tight affair and it only took the one goal for us to get through and it was and it you know they were difficult opponents um but for the second leg again to come away with a a, a nil nil in what was a very difficult evening and I remember that game also because it was the only time that Aberdeen wore the strip that very much looked like the Nottingham Forest strip and there's a very famous photograph of mm-hmm. um, Gordon Strachan, Mark McGee, Neil Cooper and Alex McLeish wearing this what everybody thought was just a, um, a one-off strip and no one had ever seen it and the only time they ever wore it was against Dinamo Tirana in Albania for the second leg. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy how like you think back now, like forty years on, where 
if we wanted to find out about Dino Mozzarana, we would go on Twitter and have it in a minute. Yeah. But Alex Ferguson need to ask referees. And it's just that it's that crazy kind of thing looking back and things like this. Like I think that's the kind of that's what the managers had to deal with. So I think a, a lot more credit goes to goes to managers in those times for having to kind of prepare the prepare their teams the way they did. But in the league things were obviously a, a difficult start. Obviously first four games it was only one one and one draw, but a good unbeaten run for Aberdeen. It ended at home to Celtic in the eleventh of December. But there's a memorable five one victory over Dundee United in there. Doug Rovey with a double. That was a, that must have felt like a massive game because obviously the the monk the first game was the the two 0 defeat, and then you've got obviously this League Cup defeat as well. That Dundee United just seemed to have the the number, and obviously won three games out the the first three they played. How big was that five one victory? Do you remember? If I remember correctly, that was a really horrible, wet, damp day. Steve Cowan on the score sheet? No, it was Cooper, Rovey, Black and Strachan. Right, okay. Uh, so maybe it's not the game I'm thinking about then. Um, listen, to get any win against what was the new firm at that time was really big for Aberdeen. Don't underestimate how important these wins were because... There was an argument at the time, and I remember them discussing this on sports scene, that games against Dundee United were now becoming more important than games against Celtic and Rangers because yeah. of the way Dundee United were building momentum under Jim McLean. So to get a victory against United was obviously, from a psychological point, a huge boost. Um so the, so the game that I'm thinking of must have been later in that season or maybe the following year when we beat them quite comprehensively at Petodrin. Steve, I remember Steve Cowan scoring that day. That game, I must admit, that game has slipped my mind completely. Really? It's, when you look back at this time, though, like obviously the DNA, t- like Alec Ferguson had obviously set up the set up the kind of mantra he wanted a minimum of two trophies. The League Cup exited in United. Obviously, yeah. back in the day, it's two legs. Yeah, yeah. That that must put massive pressure on the players though, because obviously they want to they want to set those standards. But basically, like I I don't think the the cup winners cup would have been expected. But what like basically that means in their heads that they need to win the league and the Scottish Cup to satisfy their manager. That must have been massive pressure at the time. You see, I remember the first leg of the league cup because we got battered three one at Petardry, mm. and then we lost the second leg due to a Paul Sturrock penalty with about 15 minutes to go. Yeah. But I think all the damage had already been done at Petodre. So, again, there were times when I remember games where Aberdeen would dominate and play unbelievably well and could just turn it on. But then there was the odd game here or there where nothing worked for us on the day. And we were prone to the odd head-scratching defeat, which obviously happened a little bit later in the season as well. Yeah. And the manner of the 3-1 defeat at Petodre was head-scratching. Um, yeah, that was hugely disappointing because at that point, we were still chasing on all fronts. And the the second round of the Cup Winners' Cup, Le Poznan as well, Polish side, yeah. well-revered yeah. Polish side. What was the thoughts going into that game? Because I think we, we think now we can... Up- Polish football was actually very underrated back in the day. There was a lot of good sides coming out. What was the thoughts going into that game? Everyone was half expecting 
the same type of game that we just competed in against Dinamo Tirana. I know that Sir Alex was able to get, um, from from memory, I believe Archie Knox went over and had a look at them um, and reported back. But to be honest with you, we actually, even though 2-0 suggests um, maybe a tight affair, it wasn't because on the night, again, we absolutely battered them. We hit the woodwork three times before we scored mm-hmm. and we'd also won nine corners in the first half alone. So we were dominating the game. We just couldn't find the finishing touch. And actually, it took two second-half goals from Mark McGee and Peter Weir within two minutes of each other for us to get past Lech Poznan. So nobody was surprised that we beat them in the end. Mm-hmm. And then going to Poland and winning 1-0, uh, yeah. Bell, with, Bell with a goal, yeah. uh, Dougie Bell with a goal. Going there, obviously, was, was the first leg at home better for Aberdeen, do you think, to try and connect? Because the, the next game we'll talk about, obviously, that changes. But how but how important was that kind of having that first first advantage at home and getting that result and then you're going there you're going there and your mindset completely changes it's about defending a lead but I mean winning that game and just securing it that must have been massive. It, so Alex Ferguson never went into any game hoping to get a draw. Mm-hmm. He went into every single game wanting to win, and it was exactly the same mentality when we went to Poland. Okay, we're two 0 up, but. You're going into this game. His thought would have been, guys, this is nil-nil. And we have to win this game to go through. So he would have prepared his players to make sure that they're not thinking they're going into the game with a comfortable 2-0 lead. Mm -hmm. And on the day, it actually proved to work well because Aberdeen, again, played very well that night. And the goal came from a corner kick. Ball got flicked on. Dougie Bell was left all alone at the back stick and nodded it into an empty net. So, but again, Aberdeen played very compact that night. Um, Willie Miller and Alex McLeish, as they always did, commanded the back. They made sure that the front players were working, were doing their jobs. If they had to pull back deep to help out the midfield, they would do exactly that. It was all about game management over there. And the fact that we came away with a 1-0 win was a big statement as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and that was obviously in November. And the next game in Europe we won't talk about is in, is in March. And I don't think it's a coincidence. And I speak about that so often kind of in recent years with, with how well kind of Celtic and Rangers have done in European runs that balancing domestic and European runs is very, very difficult in the modern day because you've got one game after another. With the Cup Winners Cup back then, you had the you had the case of it's ed, the kind of the preliminary rounds were up, ended in kind of November and you didn't have the quarters until March. I don't yeah. think it's a coincidence here that Aberdeen only lose one game in the league from December to March. I think that's that shows to me that that domestic and European run, trying to balance that is very difficult. Back then, was that, did you, was that kind of the reason for that really good league run that there wasn't Europe to focus on? Because it's not a coincidence that what we'll talk about after certainly happens. Mm. Is that fair? Mm. Yeah, I- yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm totally on board with that. The fact that we knew before Christmas that we're going to have European football, but not until March, yeah. meant the boys themselves in and all they had to do was concentrate on the Scottish Cup and the league campaign. So the job, as far as they were concerned, in Europe was done. Mm-hmm. Now let's start taking care of this. Let's continue the good form. And then when the European games come around in March, we take care of them then. But it... I, I, I think because it was quite a long gap, yeah. it most definitely helped with the form in the league. 
without you, having to be distracted with the thinking of European Yeah, football. absolutely. And you look at some of the, the results in here, a 3-0 win away to Dundee United, a 2-0 yeah. win at home to Rangers at Ibro, eh, at home to Rangers, Rovin McGee, 5-1 against Motherwell, a 3-1 win, Eric Black got a hat-trick at Celtic Park in uh, February. Yeah. They're massive yeah. victories. And you look back at those and you think, like, just how much the how much the landscape was changing, but the D United and Celtic in particular were still it was becoming really tight in that league. It was they they victories must have felt massive. The this was the fascinating thing about the league at the time was because everybody was in and around the mm-hmm. top of the top part of the table. Celtic and Dundee United were right up there with us and every game had significance and it made it exciting it made it good to watch it it kept teams on their toes they knew they couldn't afford to slip up so they're going into every game knowing that they've got to put on a performance because they need to gain the two points it was two points obviously at the time so every game you looked forward to there was something to feel excited about for every single game and i think that sense from the fans that started to, yeah. to sort of migrate to the players and the clubs and the staff as well. And it became hugely exciting um, because, you know, obviously we all look forward to every game these days, but the meaning behind the game isn't as significant as it was back then, sadly. And get into the quarterfinal, the draw against the German giants, Bayern Munich. Just a few players yeah. that was in Bayern's team just tells you how strong they were. Ogden Thaler, Paul Breitner, uh, Uli Hounis, and Carol Heinz Rummenigge. Yeah. This must have felt... I'm not going to say that it feels as if it was a free hit because Bayern are, Bayern are a top side, but this Aberdeen team had a lot of... must have had a lot of confidence going into that game. And going to, going to Munich and securing a 0-0 draw... Did that feel like a, a massive result going there and going to Germany in the second of March and getting, a, getting that? Oh, 100%. It is by far one of Aberdeen's greatest ever away European performances. The way that we were able to to hold by on, in the, on their own patch because um, they were in great form coming into the yeah. game as well. And you look at world-class players like your Klaus Augenthalers, your Heinz Rummenigge, your Paul Breitners of this world. They were a magnificent footballing team. And on the night, we competed with them. And if we'd had a little bit more luck, we could have actually come away with maybe even a 1-0 or a 2-0 victory. Mm. Remember, the goalkeeper made a fantastic save from Peter Weir. He cut in on his right foot, tipped it around the post. He also made a magnificent save from Mark McGee, who possibly could have done better on his right foot. Um, so we competed that night, and I don't think Bayern Munich were quite ready for that. I do remember, I think it was Uli Hunas said, look, we have to be very careful of this Aberdeen team mm-hmm. because they're a very disciplined, well-organised team. Because many people were expecting, the Bayern Munich contingent were expecting to not steamroller over us, but they were expecting a comfortable night and they didn't get it. And Uli Hoeneß apparently said after the game, I told you so. <laughs> and the second leg, obviously, at Petaudry, I watched this back last night in preparation for this. And I, being from being from the South, I don't think we appreciate just how, can I, how big that atmosphere is at Petaudry. 
that night must have been massive. That going into that night, the the chance to beat the German giants, that must have felt a huge, huge encounter. Before we look at the we'll get into the game, we'll get through the game, but going into that night for somebody who was there, what was your what was your memories going into the game? I can still remember travelling through from the village to Petodre. I can still see in my memory the floodlights in the distance. I can remember walking across the golf links um, with my scarf around me, and I knew that we were going into the main stand that night. I was nervous. I was always nervous ahead of big games, I have to be honest. Um, I remember being completely wrapped up, and I was with my mum and dad, and we took our seats just above the tunnel, a little bit to the right, which was an unusual position for us to sit because we usually sat at the other side of the main stand, or as I said, sometimes over in the south stand where we had an uninterrupted view. But that night, one of my abiding memories is having a pillar right in front of me, which obscured my vision towards the paddock end goal. So I could only see half the goal, um, which I'll come to come to later because it played a significant role that night. Um, but it was, uh, I just remember feeling nervous, but also very excited because I could see the players so close. You know, they were just, they were only yards away from me. And I was waving to every single one of them as they were running back into the tunnel. And I'm absolutely convinced that every single one of them waved back. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the build up to the game was just feeling really, really nervous. Mm-hmm. And, Bayern obviously take the lead in ten minutes. Yeah. It's a it's an absolutely wonder strike from Ogintala. Yeah. It's yeah. I think Jim Lighton's come out and said it was the the best shot he's ever been, he's ever seen. But that was that was a that must have been a body blow. But how how remarkable is is that that how important Neil Simpson's equaliser just before half time at yeah. the time it's only in the thirty ninth minute. That I don't think that's a coincidence that the fight back then happens again. But that Neil Simpson goes massive. You see, I can, st- again, there, I've got so many memories of this Bayern Munich game and I can still vividly recall moments from the game. And I remember that my dad was quite a passive fan. He was never a shouter or a screamer or anything like that. But I remember when the ball got knocked back into what was almost a dead man's area from a long ball. I think it was Eric Black that knocked it back. And Neil Simpson was in what you could say a 70-30% battle with Klaus Augenthaler for that ball where Klaus Augenthaler has 70% more of a chance of getting to that ball. But because Neil was so determined, he got just in front. And I can remember my dad coming out of his seat as Neil made that initial burst into the box. And by the time the ball had hit the back of the net, my father was already on his feet, punching the air through. That goal lifted the whole of Pataudry because yeah. all of a sudden there was just a chorus of here we go, here we mm-hmm. go, here we go. And half time was fantastic because everybody was singing, everybody was on their feet, everybody knew we'd been able to get back into the game. And I think the energy from the crowd must have seeped down into the dressing room. And it must have given the players a huge lift coming out for the second half. 
because the noise that greeted them again i can still hear it was like nothing like i've i had experienced up until that point um and it it must have given the players a lift oh it was oh dear me what a night it was yeah and then obviously after that coming out for the second half Bayern take the lead again through Pafluga I think that's how you pronounce it yeah yeah Yeah. and that must have you mentioned there obviously and you see it in the when you watch this game back there is a there is a massive buzz around Petorji but you just you just see it go silent after 61 minutes and that again Bayern you just look at how big Bayern are and they're just they're so able to do things like that at the time and what was that goal like? How did that go? Again, I can remember it so vividly because it came out of nothing. And I just remember the collective groan. Mm-hmm. It was like the whole of Potato just went, oh, it was it was so strange. Um, but it was some hit. Yeah. What a volley it was. Um, and again, I had the perfect vantage point of it because we were almost directly in line with the 18-yard box. So when the ball, because Alex McLeish tried to clear it, he kind of almost flicked it straight into Hans Flugler's path and he kind of adjusted his body and he almost hit it from behind him and hooked it in. Yeah. What a strike it was. But it was that collective groan that really sticks in my mind. Um, and I remember my mother and father falling completely silent, mm-hmm. as did everybody around us. So, so, yeah, it was just a case of having to pick ourselves up and go again. But I have to be honest... Even though we had gone two down and we knew we had to score another two goals, you know, the energy around Patojo that night was still very much there. Um, you know, the, the sort of the shock of the goal, I think the fans got over that quite quickly and not long after really started to pick up the energy again. I do remember that. Yeah, and it certainly fed through to the, the players as well because Alec McLeish makes it 2-2 and then yeah. a minute later, John Hewitt makes it 3-2 and... What a remarkable turnaround in the space of 120 seconds. Aberdeen had turned this match on its head. It's they are 120 seconds must be one of your favourites as an Aberdeen fan. Oh, honestly, it's it's a moment, it's emotions, it's memories that I don't think I will ever forget. You know the free kick routine. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, there was like a collective groan went round the stadium when John and Gordon appeared to have messed up. And this is where the pillar became an issue for me because I, I didn't see the ball hit the back of the net. Right. So I remember the ball getting delivered and I could see players jumping for the ball, but I, I, I didn't see it hit the back of the net because this bloody thing was in my way. <laughs> um, but I just remember everyone going absolutely nuts. The place went mental. So I thought, okay, and at that time, at that age, I didn't quite understand the away goal rule. Yeah. I didn't get it. My dad tried to, I remember queuing for the halftime pie at halftime, and my dad was trying to explain it to me. But I just think, I think that translation got lost in the atmosphere that night. <coughs> Excuse me. So when we scored what proved to be the winner, I can remember everyone was still on their feet. And then I remember, I think it was, the, we got a throw-in out on the left-hand side, which the cameras completely missed, if you look back. And then John McMaster delivered this yeah. long diagonal ball into the box. At that point, the television camera's on, Alex McLeish watching the flight of the ball. So John McMaster knocked it in. And I remember people, people had started to sort of come back down, 
But immediately people started to rise again from their seats. And I remember the header and I remember the goalkeeper diving what appeared to be full length. Yeah. And then because of this bloody pillar, I could see John Hewitt coming in, but I didn't see him make connection and I didn't see the ball hit the back of the net. Mm. Right. So, but because the whole place went absolutely mental, I knew that we'd scored again. At that point, my dad is going mental, my mom is going nuts, and I'm pulling down on my dad on his arm, because he was to my right, and I'm pulling down saying, what's happened? What's happened? And he said, we've scored again, kiddo. We've scored again. <laughs> it's words I will never forget. And I said to him, are, are, we, are we going through? What's happening? Are we winning? And he said, we're winning, kiddo. We're winning. <laughs> and I just, because I remember him always calling me kiddo. And uh, yeah, oh, man, honestly, I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> it. it was just what a feeling it was. Up to that point, you know, in my sort of short time supporting Aberdeen, winning the Scottish Cup was incredible. I was still too, I was still too young, very much. In, in, in my infancy when I when they won the league I was aware yeah. of it but the significance of it wasn't as big as what it was when we won the Scottish Cup and then when we beat Bayern Munich I I can't put into words the emotions that were felt that night yeah because it was such a significant turning point in my life as a supporter because it took me to another level it made me understand more the emotional side of the game and what it meant to people mm -hmm. because Pataudry that night is like I have never ever witnessed before or since by an absolute country mile um it was a it was a one-off and I feel really quite blessed to have been there yeah. with my folks um who have now passed and it was just Man, it was just unbelievable. So I'm getting emotional thinking about it because it was just the best night. Apatodry, it was just the best yeah. night. And the place came off, it came off its foundations. The roof was lifted and, you know, and then we had to hold on. And having yeah. to hold on was, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, the, the, it, was, it was so tense. It was so tense. But we, we, the mad thing is we were never in any danger. That was, you know, uh, when you watch the game back after we scored, they never created any chances. We just managed the game very well. Um, and when that full-time whistle went, oh, my God. Oh, it was just, what a night. What a night, honestly. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Tremendous, tremendous night for Aberdeen fans. And it doesn't stop, obviously, with the semi-final secured. We'll touch on that in a few seconds. But yeah. three days after that, a potential title title clash here. Aberdeen welcome Dundee United to Petodre three days after that. I think that night is Bayern Munich had the kind of stuffing knocked out of them. Do you think the quick turnaround was maybe too much for Aberdeen after the high of that game to dust yourself up and go into such a massive game with Dundee United, a fresh Dundee United? How what was your memories of that two one defeat the next the three days later? I was at that game. And I remember walking back to the car in just utter disbelief. I, I could not understand as a 10-year-old how we could beat Bayern Munich and then lose to Dundee United mm -hmm. in the very next game. I, it, it, it was too much for me. 
I got to be honest, I just I I didn't understand it at all. It was it was beyond my it was beyond my thinking. It was beyond my maturity at that time. I just remember feeling absolutely devastated that we'd lost that game. Um, but do you know what? As you know, as an adult now, looking back and having played the game to a certain level myself, and having watched so many games of football, I actually get it. I understand yeah. it because it it must have been so hard for these players to to have picked themselves up from from that game to go again because they knew they just had to keep going. Every game was a big game. All the the, the eyes of the UK were now on Aberdeen. And if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, we were the only team that was now the only British team that was left in a European yeah, right, competition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all the eyes were all of a sudden on Patoji, even not just from our shores, but beyond. Everyone started to sit up and take notice of this wee football team mm-hmm. from the northeast of Scotland. And these lads were having to deal with it. And let's not forget, we had a lot of young players in our yeah. team. Um, you know, so for them to handle that sort of pressure for the remainder of that season, let's not underestimate that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, as much as that defeat was a body blow, you can forgive them for it, I've got to be honest. Aye, I think... I think that's the thing with the, the kind of balance thing I touch on, like the trying to balance these this massive European run and trying to win the league that's tight as it is. And we see, we've seen that the kind of recent years with obviously Rangers last season, the Rangers and Celtic in the, the past twenty years. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence that when Scottish teams have got to a European final, they don't win the league. I don't think that can be underestimated, but. Aberdeen struggle in the next couple of weeks in the league. Obviously, a, a late two-one victory over Morton, uh, Eric Black, a ninetieth minute winner. Yeah. But two defeats that I think can uh, don't kill the title hopes, but they certainly can uh, make it an uphill battle. The St Mirren defeat and then the Rangers yeah. defeat to Ibrox. What were they like, especially uh, in the uh, middle of this massive victory in Europe? That was our forty-fifth game of that season. Yeah, um, and if I remember correctly, I think we ended up playing well over. 50 games that season. I think we played 55 games. No, we played 59 games that season from memory. So going into the St. Mirren game, don't forget, we were now chasing what was a treble. Scottish Cup, the league title, and now obviously the Cup Winners' Cup. And we had, every game was huge. So to lose to St. Mirren, that was a huge blow. I think from memory, we conceded about 15 minutes before the end Mm -hmm. at Pataudry. We just couldn't get going that day. Um, the game at Ibrox, yeah, like they just lifted themselves for that game. I'd, 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 I'll be honest with you, I think I've erased that game from my memory as I do most Rangers defeats. Um, but the St Mirren one, was that came out of nothing. Don't think many people were expecting that. We didn't play well on the day. And from memory, I think they just caught us on the counter-attack and they just nipped one in. Um that was a big blow in terms of the league. Mm-hmm. But you can also, you know, at that point, I don't know whether whether they did or whether they didn't, but did the, did the guys start to have one eye on the semi-final? Because at that point, collectively, they must have known, knowing that they've got water shy, which was probably the best draw. So maybe players are thinking, I want to play in the semi. You know, we've got a great chance to get to European final. I don't want to get injured. I want to be part of all this. You just don't know. And what goes through the mind of a player. So I'm not I'm not suggesting for one minute they took the foot off the gas, not at all. But 
there must have been some sort of thinking that the bigger picture here was we could win a European trophy. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned there, obviously, about the draw. It's what a shy that Aberdeen get, but it was Austria Vienna and Real Madrid was the other semi-final. Yeah. Did that feel like at the time that Watershy was the, the best draw out of the three? Yeah, 100%. I, I, I remember, I can remember Alex Ferguson giving an interview, I think it was to North tonight, okay. um, and saying that he wanted Watershy. The general consensus was we wanted Watershy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we got them, there was a huge lift because everybody now believed that this was our the best opportunity that we will probably ever have to get to a European final. Mm-hmm. And I remember, <coughs> excuse me, I can remember the build-up to that game. And I remember my dad trying to get tickets and he couldn't get tickets. And it was the only home game that we missed in that campaign. And I was absolutely devastated that we didn't get tickets for that game. I was that devastated that my dad said to me, right, let's get settled in, because it was live on the radio. Right. So get your homework done um, and get yourself ready to just sit with me in the kitchen and we'll listen to the game. I didn't want anything to do with it. Right. I'd made my mind up. I was going to go out. I was going to go and play football with my pals, because I thought, well, if I can't be there, then I'm just, I'm done with it. But obviously my... My curiosity very quickly took a hold of me. And I think within five minutes, you know, when we were just about two and a lot, I was back. Because I remember my dad leaning out the living room window shouting, it's 1-0, it's 1-0. And I think at that point, I dumped my my mates and I ran back in, sat down and listened to the rest of the game with my dad. And you look back at that night, Aberdeen take a 2-0 lead after five minutes, Eric Black and Neil Simpson. Yeah. And then it's 4-0 in the space of 70 minutes. Mark McGee, Peter Weir makes it 4. Walsh, I got a goal back, but then Mark McGee seals a 5-1 victory. Wow. I mean, what a, what a statement in terms of... And the, the other semi-final was 2-2. It was nicely poised, but there must have been a thinking that the the trip to Gothenburg was already in the, on, the, yeah. on the schedule. It, we, we battled Watershy that night. They were not... They were not prepared for how we played that night at Pataudry. Big Doug Rugby, he stalled that evening. He set the tone for the game by robbing one of their wingers, knocking him to the ground, getting forward. Um, Dougie Bell, who was absolutely immense that night, tore their defence apart. The whole team were absolutely magnificent, backed by what was a brilliant home support as well. Mm-hmm. And they just had no answers to us. Um, I was very fortunate that their goal scorer that night, I was able to interview for, for my book. And uh, I, I asked him the question, I said, you know, when you scored, it was a good goal, it was a great header. I said, but you didn't celebrate. And I said, why didn't you celebrate? So forgive me for using bad language, but I need to put it into context of the story. Mm-hmm. He said, because I knew, Ali, that we were fucked. <laughs> <laughs> and that just goes to show the mentality of the Watershy players. And to their great credit, you know, the second game was obviously a formality, but they beat us on yeah. the night. They beat us 1-0. They won the game. Um, and obviously that was the, the night that Stuart Kennedy got injured, which put him out um, put him out of the final and sadly ended his career. Um, and that was obviously our only defeat um, in, the, in the competition. So 
But the first leg, the damage was done. Mm-hmm. We were magnificent that night. And then, obviously, it's all systems go for to Gothenburg. Yeah. What's the memories of that time? Because when you look back at all the kind of the news clips and things like that, all you see is Aberdeen fans just heading to Sweden. What was your memories of that whole kind of time? And obviously, the, the trip to Gothenburg and get going there and things like that. And what, what kind of stands out to you? So I remember desperately wanting to go, and I remember bugging my dad daily. Can we go? Can we go? And my dad was always fully prepared for these type of situations because he would give me an answer, which wasn't quite a yes. And more importantly, it wasn't quite a no. He would say, we'll see. So throughout my childhood, if I said to dad, can we go to the beach today? Uh, We'll see. Can we go to football? Ah, we'll see. So he always left me with that little glimmer of hope that maybe we could go to the beach or we could go to the football or we could go to the cinema or whatever. So there was a glimmer of hope. And I knew that my dad, through the company he was working for at the time, which was a small charter aviation company out of Aberdeen Airport, that he was helping to organize a host of flights to take the fans over. So I knew he was involved. Mm -hmm. And I remember he came home from work and I was playing across on the on the green, uh, directly across the, the road from where we lived, just playing football as I normally did every night. And he called me over and jacket and his suit, his uh, briefcase out of the, the car. And he just leaned over to me and he said, so do you want to go to Gothenburg? And I was like, are we going? Are we going? He's like, yep, we're going to go to Gothenburg. <laughs> I, just, I just grabbed him, you know, <laughs> just grabbed him, Brilliant. hugged him. Then he said to me, and how would you like to take your best mate? And my best mate at that time was a, a guy called Ewan Taylor, who is still one of my closest pals to this day. He said, how would you like Ewan to come as well? And, oh, you know, that just added to it. So I was going to go to Gothenburg with my family, my best mate. The only thing that I'm kind of a little bit sad about even now is that my little brother was too young to go. Yeah, He was only seven at the time, so he had to stay behind. Um, yeah, I'm still kind of quite gutted about that even now, even 40 years on, I'm still mm. a bit gutted for him about that, but it's just how it is. And the preparation for the game, the memories of that, the the, the day, it's certainly the, the weather, God's been kind, it was very wet, the, obviously famously, the pitch was covered with tarpaulin to protect it from the rain. Did that help Aberdeen? I think it had its advantages, let's put it that way. Um, because Aberdeen had been so used to playing in those sort of conditions year upon year, whereas Real Madrid hadn't. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think we went into that game mentally stronger than they did. I remember the heavens opening because we were walking around Gothenburg city centre. There was a group of us that were there, a couple of mum and dad's friends as well. And I remember going into what was uh, an indoor shopping mall and it had a glass roof. Mm -hmm. And we were, I think we were having lunch or a cup of coffee, whatever it was. And I just remember the noise of the rain hitting the glass. Yeah. And then I remember this place just filling up with people. And it was obviously people coming in to shelter from the rain. Um, and I remember there being so many Aberdeen fans in the shopping mall as well. It was, it was really great fun in there. Um, and I remember going outside to go back to the hotel. And it was like rain that I'd never seen before in my life. It was torrential. Mm-hmm. 
So we got back to the hotel and the conversation started amongst the adults that potentially this game could get called off. So I remember my dad going down into reception and just sort of making a few inquiries and all that sort of stuff and came back on and said, look, I've not heard anything. So he'd, he'd organised a bus um, to take us to the stadium. So we jumped on the bus, made our way to the stadium. It was still absolutely chucking it down. I remember getting off the bus and my mum going to find these, these outlandish, long, garish type yellow rain max. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that just absolutely covered us from head to foot. And we got into the stadium and we were late getting in. So we didn't miss kickoff, but we missed the teams walking out the tunnel. So we got to our first vantage point and I couldn't see. I couldn't see anything. I had this big lump in front of me and I couldn't see. And Eric Black hit the bar. And I just remember grabbing my dad and shouting to him, I can't see, Dad, I can't see. Eric hit the bar. And I remember just grabbing my dad and shouting at him that I couldn't see. And by this point, we were all soaked to the skin anyway. And because we were completely open to the elements, that dad decided to just move us further down the Mm -hmm. terracing. And it was was long benches. So dad just moved us further down, which took us almost almost in line with Jim Layton's 18-yard box, maybe maybe two or three yards to the left. And we just stood there and watched the game from there. So I got the perfect vantage point from there. Um, but I just remember, before Eric Black scored, just feeling a wee bit cold and miserable. I do remember that. Eric Black obviously gives Aberdeen the lead after seven minutes, a, a massive goal. It's a weird yeah. one because Gordon Strachan... With that ball to Eric Black, it's it's actually a very underrated goal. I don't think he spoke about it enough. What a what a memory that must be that that opening goal. It, do you know it was? It didn't come as a surprise, and it was a really well worked corner which the lads had worked on before. The late run from Alex McLeish deep gets his head onto the ball, and obviously he just wants to put it into an area where somebody can pick up the bits and pieces, and that's exactly what happened. Eric just pounced and knocked it in, and. <clears throat> What I remember is obviously going nuts, you know, jumping up and down on these wooden benches, but the, the the crowd, the vast majority of Aberdeen fans were behind us and up on the next tier. Mm-hmm. And sorry to sound a bit cosmic here, but you could really feel the energy coming down. Yeah. You just, I just felt it. Um, and that whole place was just going absolutely nuts. I remember what, looking around and looking at the Aberdeen fans. Um, that was a really good moment, but it didn't come as a surprise mm-hmm. that we took the lead. Because yeah. to be honest with you, my thinking, I remember thinking ahead of that game, I don't care if it was Real Madrid. I didn't really have an understanding of how big a club they were. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I keep going back to the naivety of childhood. I was only 10 years old, so I was still very much in my infancy as a football fan. Um, but it didn't come as any surprise to me that we took the lead. Absolutely not. And then obviously conditions start to get muddy really quickly. Real Madrid come back into the game. A very uncharacteristic mistake from Alex McLeish and the party passes the ball back to Jim Layton. Jim Layton obviously gets I would say he gets stuck in the mud actually. I think he's yeah, he's yeah. very unlucky. Yeah. What he obviously brings down uh, so Santa Lana. Yeah. He would have been sent off now. 
Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And it's crazy, and it's that kind of weird thing that he's still on the park. I don't think he gets. Does he, does he get booked for it? No, no. And it's that. That's unbelievable. But obviously, that means that Real Madrid got a penalty. Juanito just puts it down the middle, yeah. equaliser, yeah. and Madrid dominate the remainder of the half. Did half time come at the right time for Aberdeen? Because it just felt that Real Madrid were just getting a lot better into the game, and lights are uh, Stilic. Is it the the German? Stilic. Really, yeah. yeah, he was really yeah. good that day. Do you know, I've watched the game back a few times over the past few years, and I would suggest that Real Madrid were comfortable in after they scored, but never at any point do they look like scoring. Right. Aberdeen, I think Aberdeen had that game fully under control, and they were never at any point while watching, did I think Real Madrid would score again? Yeah. Because we, because we played quite compact, and then hit them with Peter Weir fast bursts from Peter Weir mm-hmm. with John McMaster supporting um, Neil Simpson and Neil Cooper trying to get forward. Gordon Strachan playing his his pinpoint accuracy passes as he always did, um, and Mark and Eric up front just making a nuisance of themselves and making themselves busy. Never at any point did I fear Real Madrid after they scored because we were in full control of that game. And when you watch the second half, I revert back to a quote I said before, we absolutely battered them in the second half. And to this day, I still don't know how we did not win that game in regulation time because we had so many chances and we dominated the play that they had absolutely no answers to us. I don't think they created one single chance in that second half from memory, which just goes to show how well we coped with the conditions and how well we coped with Real Madrid as a team. We were magnificent that night, absolutely magnificent. And it didn't come as any surprise when we scored. The only the only surprising bit was that we didn't score before. Mm-hmm. And then obviously there's any extra time, just before extra time, Eric Black, the only substitute substitution yeah. of the game for Aberdeen. Yeah. Eric Black comes off, John Hewitt comes on. Get into extra time. Not a lot happens, but obviously a, a very famous goal with eight minutes to go. Weir passes the ball to Mark McGee, takes the ball well, crosses it in, and there's John Hewitt. Threw himself into the path of the ball, glancing header, and Aberdeen take the lead and eventually go on to win the Cup Winners' Cup. Just talk us through that, the memories of that. It is, without a shadow of a doubt, purely in footballing terms, the greatest moment of my life. (laughs) There is nothing that I can compare it with. There is nothing that comes close to it. It's a moment which is almost frozen in time for me. Um, I can still see the build-up. I can see John throwing himself. I can see the ball hitting the net. I can remember just going absolutely nuts. The noise from the fans behind us, the the party that we had traveling with us, the traveling party, all just, just my mum jumping up and down. I've never forgotten my mum. She's just jumping up and down. It was so funny. Um, and I remember when Doug Rugby. You know, he sprang the length of the pitch. He mm-hmm. was the first one to get to John Hewitt and grabbed him in this sort of 
bear wrestle almost type of act. And I remember there was there was like these cushions, there was like these red leather cushions that were sort of sporadically placed across these benches. And I remember they were just coming over the top of our heads. So I remember picking one up and just launching it. Um, and my mum grabbing me and telling me off yeah. um, in the act of celebrating the goal. It was just, uh, you know, every time I watch it, and, and to some people this may sound really odd, and you'll have to take it as gospel, but every time I watch that goal, I get goosebumps. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's just an unbelievable moment. Um, not the fact that it, it, you know, it was a goal that won as a cup, was a cup, but it was a it was an absolutely brilliant goal. You know, Peter Weir stole the ball in our own half from their fullback, I believe, and I think he came inside, cut outside dinked it over to Mark McGee, um, who's now on his left foot, mm-hmm. and puts in this pinpoint cross. Um, and I can remember the goalkeeper, you know, diving for it, making a, an attempt to get the ball. And I can, you know, because again, we had the, the perfect vantage point of it because it was directly in front of us right here. Yeah. John just connected. And I, and when the ball sort of hit the net, it kind of bubbled up and came down. And, oh, my God, it's just, it's unbelievable, mate. Honestly, again, I, I just don't have words to describe the feeling and the emotion when that ball hit the back of the net. Um, you know, for a couple of minutes, people were just, it was just joyous. It's the only thing, I, it's the only word I can find. Um, and then, obviously, we had to hold on think for nine minutes I think we had to hold on eight or nine minutes and oh god that was so nerve-wracking that was worse than the Bayern Munich game yeah that was nerve-wracking but these nine minutes oh my god it was absolutely unbearable I, re- I, ju- I do remember that I remember just saying to my dad how long how long how long everybody that's that was the only chat that was going around how long how long um and then they got that free kick right at the end mm-hmm. oh Good God. I've never seen so many, I've never seen so many grown men pray. <laughs> um, I just, uh, yeah, that, that was a, that was a, because if I remember correctly, I think, I think he took it twice. Mm-hmm. I think they had to retake the free kick. I need to go back and look at it. That might have escaped me completely. Um, and when the ball flew, when he hit it, because he caught it perfectly, there was a gasp, honestly, there was a gasp. Um, and it whizzed past the post and then it hit the deck and it almost stuck in the deck. Yeah. So with the so I'm gonna try and explain this. So the vantage point that I was looking at it this direction, so it looked so with the way the ball had stopped dead, it looked like it had ended up in the corner of the net. It was actually it was on the other side. I hope I'm making sense here. Mm-hmm. But my vision looked like it had ended up in the back of the net. So for one horrible fleeting moment, I thought they'd equalized until I realized that all the fans above us again were celebrating like we just scored. <laughs> um, and then obviously it was just a, a quick passage of play. Um, Jim Leighton booted the ball out, got it back, hoofed it up the park and, and the ref blew the whistle. And oh, that was a really special moment when the whistle blew because again, everybody just went absolutely nuts. Um, just the noise coming down from the top tier and 
people running and grabbing each other and everybody hugging and yeah that was that was really cool really cool absolutely brilliant the the kind of obviously that day will live in infamy with the getting that result and getting the, the European trophy but there's a a couple of things to tidy up before we, we kind of close the show Aberdeen gave it their best shot but just couldn't win the title obviously Dundee yeah. United won it in the final day yeah, you have to hand it to Dundee United for just how well they done that season. But what a what a league season that actually was! One of the closest league seasons I think we've seen between three teams in a long time. You see, if if Celtic and Dundee United had lost their games that day, Aberdeen would have won the league. Yeah, um, it just so happened that Celtic and Dundee United both won their games. Yeah, Celtic obviously um, come back. Was Celtic four two down at Ibrox? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, then, the last game for us was against Hibs, wasn't it? Yeah, 5-0. My memory serves me correct, and we battered Hibs at Patoji. The day that we came back and held the, uh, paraded the Cup Winners' Cup around the stadium, and they gave us a guard of honour, um, we absolutely battered them that day. Mm-hmm. But it just it wasn't enough. And I think, sadly, those defeats against United, St. Mirren and Angels probably killed our chances. Um, but do you know what? Only three days before we won the Cup Winners' Cup. Yeah, and you wouldn't so, trade it. You wouldn't trade it, yeah. but... A final chance for, for glory, a Scottish Cup as well to to, remark, to cap off a remarkable double. A 1-0 win over Rangers, Eric Blackburn, extra time winner. That's games went into infamy for what happened after the match. Now, I think if you were to, inter- I would love to interview Alec Ferguson. If you were to ask him for one of his biggest regrets, I think it would be this post-match interview. Because although he was a perfectionist, he was, he absolutely wanted the best performance every game. He obviously came out famously and said that day that Mullen McLeish won the, the cup for Aberdeen. It was a disgrace of a performance. But you have to, when you, and I'm not going to criticise Alex Ferguson, but he didn't get just how tired and how long that season was. And that the performance wasn't the priority there. It was just getting that result. And what do you think Alex Ferguson would say about that interview now if you asked him? Oh, I think he, he most definitely regretted it not long after. Um, you know, he, he, Archie Knox, a very quiet word in his ear mm-hmm. and said to him, look, um, you may need to speak to the players. Because and you the, totally understand why, why uh, he said it. 100% understand because we were awful that day. You know, I was lucky enough to be at the game. It was, an, it was a substandard performance. But again, not as a 10-year-old, not fully understanding the commitment that it took all the way through that season. And you also have to remember that the lads had a break of about 10 days from the Hibs game until the Scottish Cup. Yeah. And in those 10 days, all they wanted to do was go and lie on a beach mm-hmm. because they were absolutely exhausted, not just physically, but mentally as well. Yeah. Um, they'd taken the league campaign all the way to the final game of the season they just won the Cup Winners' Cup in remarkable circumstances. Um, and now they had to, to lift themselves again. If that game had come, maybe, say, three or, day, three or four days after the Hibs game, <coughs> I think it would have been a completely different story. But because it came 10 days after, um, you can forgive the players for feeling absolutely, yeah, absolutely. exhausted. Absolutely. But you can also forgive Sir Alex for coming out and saying what he said because he had set the standards and he never, ever wanted those standards to slip. Hence why he just blew a gasket that day. But I... That's it. Um, 
But also, you've got to think it helped shape him as a manager going forward. Absolutely. It helped shape his thinking and his understanding of how to deal with players in certain situations. And he must have used that example during his time at Manchester United because he had to deal with some very challenging situations during his time at United. And I'm sure that he would have probably called upon that experience after the Scottish Cup final to help him get through. He would have 100% have learned from that, what was it, two, three-minute interview that he gave at the end of that game. Because Sir Alex Ferguson was always learning Mm -hmm. how to become a better manager, how to become a better man-manager. He was always on the job. He never, ever rested for one minute. And that's why, in my opinion, he's the greatest football manager of all time. Um, Because he was continually learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the players now, they've completely forgiven him for it. And they they use it as a tool to tell very funny stories. But at the time, oh, it irked all of them, big time. Um, But again, they learned from it. Mm -hmm. And... They eventually, once the the initial anger subsided, they started to understand this is all about standards. And he didn't ever, ever want us to let our standards drop. Um, So there was a hidden message there. There There was almost an argument to say it was reverse psychology. And let's be honest, it worked. Because look what happened the next season. We went on and we won the league. Yeah. Ali, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing your story about this, this season. Pleasure, mate. Sorry, I got emotional a couple of times. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for, for joining me, and I really appreciate it. Anytime, mate. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much, everyone that's tuned in. Please join us for the final episode of this series of The Rewind as we look back to Scotland's 1974 World Cup campaign when Scotland, an unbeaten run in the, the World Cup, but couldn't get that holy grail of reaching the knockout rounds. Thanks to everyone that's tuned in and we will see you soon. Cheers.